0: What's going on, coaches? We just released our newest episode, episode six of Talking Ball, uh, straight from the dojo uh, with Coach Soma from Wagner. Uh, we get to talk uh, just at length; they're about two hours, just over football, over um, a lot of trap, a lot of how they, you know, how his offensive line works through their system at Wagner, uh, Wagner's football program. Uh, we had a blast getting to talk some football with him think you guys will enjoy that up, up on uh, RTP Premium, which again is only $12 a month. Also some big news, we, we partnered with J.T. O'Sullivan. We just had a podcast episode with him not too long ago. He just came out with a new RPO course, um, and he's giving our listeners 15% discount on his course. We've already watched the course. The course is unbelievable, um, and so we're excited that we get to give you guys that Um that percentage off 15% off. Go to RTP School, RTP School.com. Uh, when you guys order the RPO course, put in RTP 15, all capitals, RTP 15 for the coupon code, and you guys get 15% off his RPO course, um, which is an unbelievable course made by a high school coach in California that was a uh, former NFL quarterback. So, Uh, You guys can check that out at RTP School. You can check all of our stuff out at runthepower.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder provides strength and conditioning software to high schools around the country. Whether you write your own programs, have a full-time strength coach, or need training programs, Team Builder can make your program better. Right now, Team Builder is offering a 10-week off-season football training program with a -a two-a-day speed and agility program. This template even comes with videos from some of the top SEC strength coaches that will show you how to run your weight room. Visit their website and enter the code RTP to get the off-season football training template and start your 14-day completely free trial at teambuilder.com. Again, enter code RTP at teambuilder.com, which is team, B-U-I-L-D-R, dot com. On today's episode of RTP, we talk with Josh Pardini, Coach Pardini is the OC and offensive line coach at Lackawanna College in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Listen as we talk with Coach Pardini about his favorite run schemes, inside zone and pin and pull. We also talk about his experience coaching junior college offensive linemen and our favorite TV show, Set in Scranton. You guys know what it is already, The Office. You can follow Coach Pardini on Twitter at Coach J Pardini. Hope you guys enjoy.
1: Josh Bardini from Lackawanna College. I'm the offensive coordinator, offensive line coach. I'm co-recruiting coordinator. We are a two-year junior college located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We're about two hours um, north of Philadelphia, um, probably most famous for where the office was supposed to be filmed. It wasn't filmed here. Uh, filmed out in California, but uh, didn't play in college.
0: <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I, was gonna, I just put a note down. Scranton, I'm pretty sure that's where the office was. They oh, yeah. They
1: didn't I, film I, it there, though? They did not. I will uh-huh. say they did an unbelievable job with uh, like the brands of foods and uh, radio station bumper stickers and stuff like that, naming all the bars. Like they really did their research. I give them credit. But there was actually <laughs> nothing filmed here other than the opening scenes when John Krasinski came into Scranton to kind of tour the place a little bit. But yeah, I'm, I'm quite used to having to answer that one. But anyway, <laughs> uh, back to the football stuff. Uh, didn't play in college. I got hurt in high school, had a back injury, and um, tried to do everything I can to stay involved, so kind of helped out with the team a little bit. And then my senior year, you know, I was that crazy guy in the front row of stands, painting up and heckling officials, which kind of carried over to my coaching days. Um, I went to culinary school because my father owned a restaurant, and I thought, you know, that was really what I wanted to do with my life. So I went to a two-year school uh, up here in Pennsylvania and then as fate would have it, I got a Facebook message from my ninth grade English teacher who had just got a head coaching job, at the high school across the street, asking me to volunteer. So, I uh, jumped on with him as a volunteer. A month later, I was a paid assistant a year after that, I was his offensive coordinator. Um, and then by the time I was 20 years old, I was the defensive backs coach up here at Lackawanna college coaching guys who were older than me. Um, you know, with myself, with no college playing or coaching experience, but that was a, that was a hell of a ride. You know, we were, uh, 10 and, or I'm sorry, 9 and 2 that first year, ended up finishing 6th in the country, Um, so it started out really well, and then kind of bounced around from there. I moved to running backs, um, tight ends, wide receivers, quarterbacks, and I'm probably the worst quarterback coach in the history of America, and then finally got to promotion, uh, offensive coordinator, and offensive line coach, and I've been here for the last five years.
0: That's a, uh, I would say, a, a pretty big switch uh, from the from the secondary all the way over to the greatest position uh, on <laughs> on the football field. From, uh, I think you probably think of the two people that normally don't get along the most is is the DBs and the offensive linemen. Um, what was that? Uh, obviously, you had a few switches in between. What has that been like? Um, you know, making that switch, even even for me um, and all and and I'm excited to hear what kind of what you have to say about it. But everyone I've talked to talks about how important it is to coach on both sides of the ball because you learn so much more about it. But it's, it's honestly, it's just a scary thing for me to even think about going, you know, over to, for me, go over to the defense where uh, at least personally, I know very, very little about it.
1: Sure. You know, I, I, I believe that. I believe it should be a prerequisite for anybody who coaches to coach on both sides of the ball. And I think doing it at the high school level, Um, you know, where most of the time, especially in Pennsylvania, where you don't have a two platoon team, everybody should have to deal with that. Everybody should have to coach an offensive skill, you know, for half to practice or a defensive skill for half to practice or one day a piece, no matter how you organize it. But I think that really helped me grow as a coach, um, coaching defensive backs was learning a lot, but then understanding how the techniques and the coverages and stuff like that tied into what was going on in the front half of it really helped me grow as an offensive line coach here down the road.
2: Coach, what are some things you kind of maybe teach your your offensive line about coverages? I know my first foray into to offensive line coaching was at the University of Tulsa with Denver uh, Johnson, and he talked about coverages all the time, which, I mean, kind of right up my alley being, you know, a, a skill kid and a, a guy that had coached a lot of those positions. But he talked about secondary play and safeties and corner alignments all the time just because you know, a lot of them would tip their hand, especially when it came to, to pressures and things like that. So is that something you carry over with your offensive line as well?
1: I think, you know, more so this year, Coach, we became a very big pin and pull team. So by uh, being able to identify who the force player is going to be, whether it be a, a hard corner or a role safety, um, we talked about a lot of coverages from that standpoint, from an offensive line. And then from protection standpoint, we don't really speak in terms of coverages. We just talk about linebackers or um, overhang players being capped or uncapped to kind of tip away a blitz, but not a whole bunch um, into the coverage part of it. That's pretty much reserved for the quarterbacks and the wide receivers. Um, but like I said, with the pin and pull stuff, having our guys understand who's going to be the fast force player, or if we motion a guy across, what the coverage is going to roll to, and who's going to be the, the force player then, you know, we did go over some of that stuff this year. What, um,
0: what has Indy, uh, you know, because thinking secondary to me um, – I'm sure the backup is a little bit different of a backup, but offensive line and pass pro, uh, you're kind of backing up. Um, obviously, DB, you're backing up, um, and this is me knowing very little about defensive backs, so I apologize if I'm way off. But just, this has always <laughs> been my thought on on it. So at least somewhat similar uh, of the way they they have to go about it, and then I think the other big thing is um, maybe just thought process wise. You can think of a great DB that shuts someone down all game, um, but but they bust or they lose on, on two uh, twice a game, and you know then the receivers had a huge game. He got two balls, but they were both for whatever, 40 yards, and, and he's had a huge game. It was only the two that he messed up. And then uh, to me it was kind of the same for a tackle. I mean, all these defensive linemen that were excited to get 12 sacks a game or 12 sacks a year – that's, you know, or 16, I guess, in the NFL would be a huge season. That's just one a game. Uh, and so a tackle could play great the whole entire game, give up one sack, and now, it, you know, it, it's kind of set up for a defensive lineman. Uh, was there any – is there any kind of carryover did you feel between the two as far as maybe even thought process or, uh, you know, kind of the, the same way that, that you're put into some of those pressure situations?
1: Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point there. I mean, if you think about it, defensive back and offensive line, they're probably the only two positions in all of sports where you have to neutralize an opponent while he's running full speed at you and you're retreating backwards. And, and to me, there's nothing natural about those skills. You know, So I think you know some of the basic techniques that we talk about in terms of offensive line play and staying square and maintaining a base and keeping your feet underneath yourself and keeping your chest high, all that stuff could be related to DB play as well. Um, you know, it's been a while since I was over there, about 11 years, you know, so I'm sure some techniques and things have changed. But, you know, when I was a DB coach, we were out there hitting a five man sled with our two hand jams and our opposite hand punches and stuff like that. So um, I think I kind of used some stuff that I knew about offensive line play coming from high school and my high school coaching background to kind of, you know, get the job done with the DBs. Like I said, we finished six in the country that year, so I didn't screw it up too bad.
2: Coach, I want to get back to your, your pin pull. Uh, it, to me, it's always a fascinating, you know, maybe it's an argument, you know, like guys want to talk about either you're going to run outside zone or you're going to run pin pull, buck sweep, you know, whatever anyone calls it. Why did you kind of decide, you know, last year you said you got into a lot of it. Is that something you've kind of always wanted to do? Is that something you did because maybe your, your personnel, what kind of led you to pin pull? Because me personally, I've always been kind of a pin pull person as well.
1: You know, desperation leads to innovation, Coach. For, uh, for a long time, I was an Alex Gibbs wide zone, true stretch, you know, all 11 guys on the field got to do their job type of guy, and we had success with it. But we had success with it when I was sending offensive tackles to the University of Oklahoma and tailbacks to Arizona State, and it was a personnel-driven thing. Um, and then going back and looking at it over a four-year period, 72% of our wide zone or our stretch plays ended up hitting in the front side A-gap, so I looked at myself and the rest of our offensive staff, and I said, you know, what are we doing wasting a lot of time on a play that's hitting in the frontside A-gap? We're not getting to the edge, you know, maybe on the jet sweep portion a couple times, but it's become a stretch and puncture play for us, and it was hitting in the cylinder. Um, so we kind of eliminated stretch two years ago, and I had three offensive tackles who signed a power five schools, two guards who could just push a truck out of a bar. Um, one of the smartest centers I've ever had. So we lined up and we ran inside zone 385 times um, and all its variations, the wham, the cut zone, all that kind of stuff. And we, we were just able to do it. And then they all graduated. So uh, going back and looking at that, I said, you know, we have to find a way to put the ball on the edge and we're not going to be able to line up and, and crowd there somebody off the ball for six yards of carry, like we were doing these last couple of years. So uh, I talked to coach McCook at um, Shepherd University in Hagerstown, Uh, Maryland who in my eyes is like the best at the pin and pull stuff and uh, he was very open helped us a lot and uh, ended up being our best play we were able to ride it all the way to national championship game for us this year
0: so what are your so what are some of your key tenants on pin and pull I've been around guys that um, get really really into it I was uh, uh, under Gordy Shaw who was at Minnesota uh, and Mm -hmm. back when it was kind of their thing was pin and pull and, and he had 800 different rules. And, and really that's most of what we ran that year. And so it didn't get too ruly. Uh, And then I've been around guys that are a little bit more probably up tempo, And so they don't have as many calls, as many rules. They're a little bit more simplified. Um, And obviously I don't want you to give all your secrets away, but how how do you guys kind of look at that or, or how do you, uh, get that in place for your guys because there are so many different ways uh, you could decide to pin or or who pulls and, and uh, you know, against different defenses, depending on probably what that defense does.
1: Sure. You know, uh, I think being a junior college, we are a two year school, but we're a one year program. So when it comes to that kiss principle of keep it simple, stupid, we have to abide by that and sometimes exceed those expectations just because, you know, I'm going to get 15 weeks to work with my starting right tackle before he's at the University of Maryland. Um, So what we do from an offensive line standpoint is we block fronts. Now, there's five fronts in football. Anybody will tell you that, but we only block three, and our rules kind of hold true for each front. So we break our run game down into three categories, our zone game, our gap game, and then our map game. Map meaning half man, half gap, so the pit and pool kind of falls into that. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, But we tell our guys that you're either going to see bear odd or even and what we classify bear as is the cylinder being covered so the center and guards are both covered we classify odd as the center being covered and both guards being uncovered and we classify even as anything else so if we can uh, understand you know the fronts and our center can make a good mic declaration then we just have to know our rules from there Um, and we actually did a really good job of it this year I think we were somewhere between 92 and 93 percent from an assignment standpoint over an 11 game season.
0: That's really impressive uh, with, with pin and pull, because I've seen it go really, really wrong at times, um, yeah, at least me personally trying to coach that at times. Um, and, and so kind of to me, I, I think maybe the hardest thing for me to coach, and I don't know if it's hard, but just there's so many different things that can happen, is uh, the down block on the pin. Uh, because sure. you're blocking down, and, and it's normally you're blocking down, and who cares if the guy gives a little penetration, and you wash him down and the play hits outside of it on – power or whatever, but on pin and pull uh, you're blocking down and you got to block down hard enough that he doesn't escape, but you can't block down so hard that once he sees the guy in front of him pulling that, that he now skates across your face. What are some hints, tips, some, some blocking rules uh, or drills? What do you get, what do you do to help those guys uh, block down or what's some coaching cues you could give me? Uh, because I think that's one that we run into a lot.
1: So we tell our guys, you know, we operate out of 11, 12, 13, 10 personnel, but we operate from the gun. We're an RPO-based football team. So what we tell our, our, our seal block guys, we don't call it a, a down block because down means something else in our system. We call it a seal block or a back block. And what we're telling that, that offensive player is he's going to bite the near shoulder pad of the defender that he's blocking back on. He's not going to put his head across the chest. He's not going to put his head behind. He's going to bite the near shoulder pad and then with his inside hand, he's gonna throw a single under to the breastplate, and that's gonna help stop penetration, okay? My outside hand is gonna control his hip, and this is what we tell our guys. If I can control his hip, I can control his center mass, I can wash him down the line. The other thing we talk about is when that hip disappears, a good defender is gonna try and spin over the top of that back block or that seal block to try and match the hats to the front side. So we tell our guys when that hip disappears, you gotta find it and reapply pressure And best case scenario, you're going to stop him from spinning. Worst case scenario, you're going to slow him down and hopefully your back's by him at that point.
0: And so then, obviously, the thing that that I always worry about, or or, I don't know if worry is the right reason, but because you're not so hard down, you guys are biting that near shoulder. Um, If a guy penetrates hard or he slants in but not not slants in hard enough, uh, do you have a rule with – with letting the guys pull and pick that guy up? Are you telling your down guy to somehow try to get hands on him? Uh, are you telling him if you don't get hands, keep going on your path? What's your kind of coaching point or, or talking, you know, thought process with those guys uh, when something like that were to happen?
1: So if we get – if we're going to execute a seal block, let's say on a five technique and he long sticks or does something like that, he tries to get into the V gap and he kind of just runs away from us, What we tell our our seal block guys to stay on that track because if something's going away, obviously something's coming back. If there's a – for whatever reason we don't get a good seal block and he penetrates up the field and he throws off a puller, that puller's got to take them. What we tell our pullers is that they got to make the back blocks right, but when everything goes wrong, they got to get the play started. So put a hat on a hat. Let the back try and get us back to the line of scrimmage. Let's play second and ten.
2: Coach, what are some things you guys are doing then you know, with the pin pull? I know a ton of teams obviously are doing some things on the backside with the RPOs you know, to control fast flow backers. Uh, are you guys doing anything maybe on the front side that's, that might be a little bit different? I know, you know with, with teams seeing a lot of pin pull and flying down to set the edge, there's a bunch of teams that are doing things out the front side. Is that something you guys do a little bit of both?
1: Yeah, we'll rip some front side glances and some front side seam routes. Um, to the side where the pin and pull is going, depending on how they're going to fit it that week. You know, we played a team out in New Rochelle, New York, and they were going to sit in quarters and force with the safety. So we were throwing bang eights or glance routes off that, you know, front side safety. I will say, you, you know, you, you have to have some coconuts. You have to be willing to maybe let your quarterback take a hit because your edges aren't extremely protected. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the zone scheme is so, uh married to the RPO stuff is because you're you're protected edge to edge. Whereas the pin and pull and the gap scheme stuff, you're not as protected unless you're in 12, 13 personnel stuff like that. What are you
0: telling when when receivers are they're not? It's not an RPO. They're blocking as a part of the scheme. Are they uh, are they still push cracking to safeties or are they going man on with the corners? I've kind of heard two different ways. Uh, I I know a lot of guys that are very adamant like i know walls is really big i think into you know kind of staying on corners and i and i've got have a, had a, other offense coordinators that are uh that like to try to get those wide receivers to the safeties with pin and pull and and but what are you guys trying to do with your wide receivers when it's not an rpo when they are blocking on the front side of it
1: so we treat um for the blocking scheme for the receivers we treat it just like we'd be throwing a bubble screen out there so we're telling that outside receiver for running to the you know the tight end flanker side or the tight end. Planker side um, that he's got most dangerous so he's going to walk off and he's going to see what the corner does if the corner is going to become the force player he's going to take that if the safety is going to rotate down he'll take that you know so he's kind of just working most dangerous and then that way there's not a whole bunch of rules involved of it you know we kind of just let those guys play fast they understand the scheme they understand what we're trying to get accomplished so they don't bust on that very often I will say that's something we do have to do a better job of though um, in the pin and pin- pool game especially when we get into some of our snug and compressed sets we did have some uh, blocking mishaps with the wide receivers at some points.
0: Are, are your guys that are pulling, are, do they have sp- very specific guys that they're pulling for? Or are they kind of have a good landmark for who they might have, and then they're picking up first color from linebacker? Or if a safety were to fill, what are you telling those guys that are pulling?
1: So we, we identify who we're going to pull to. Um, you know, we're going to pull the center every opportunity we get, unless he doesn't think our, our backside guard can cut off a backside shade or a G, then we'll make a buck call and we'll run true buck sweep and we'll pull the guards, um, or the tackle, depending on the front side B gap. But, uh, that's kind of the man portion to it for us, you know? So the center is going to be uh, the, the first puller, whether it be the guard or the tackle, depending on the front, he's going to be working a force. The center is going to be working to his mic point. And then how we handle the, the backside linebacker all depends on the front. It could be a guard, open pull, and we call it a super scoop where he's going to you know, chase the center's tail, take the first window he's got to cut off that backside backer. We can zone scoop it on the backside. There's a couple different things we can do. Um, but we call the technique a mirror pull because what we want our linemen who are pulling to do is we want them to mirror the movements of the guys they're pulling to. So I want to mirror the movement of the force player. I want to mirror the movement of the mic. You can turn on some of our tape. We have a lot of pit and pull stuff going around and I thought our center did an unbelievable job this year of actually kind of overrunning his pool spot to get the mic to jump back door, and we didn't even have to block him, you know, because the back was by him. So, uh, like I said, I I think we do a really good job of empowering our kids and letting them know what we're trying to get accomplished so that they can kind of make the scheme something of their own. I
0: like that super scoop. Are you guys doing that against the shade front side? I I don't know many people that have done that, but I've always – uh, I got it from uh, Coach Shaw, but he always liked to pull the backside guard. As, and like you said, it's not necessarily a pull. Uh, it's a great term for it, super scoop. But you're getting around that shade that the guard's blocking down on.
1: We actually use it more against the odd front. Okay. You know, so when we're working against a 3-3 three, three stack, the center's got to get to that 40-stack linebacker. The tackle's got to get out to the force player, the overhang. And now I'm asking my backside guard to get a hat on that double zero. You know, so if I just take a, a, a 45 degree angle of departure and I just try to run and cut him off, I'm never going to get there. So I'm going to pull, chase the center's tail, take the first window I got, and I'm either going to run him by the play and let the tailback make me right or I'm going to get my hips around and try and seal him <laughs> and build the wall on the back.
0: And then kind of my my last one with, with pin and pull is always kind of my big, uh, you know, thought process through it is uh, when it's to a tight end as opposed to away from a tight end, uh, and, and it helps with you being the, the guy that gets to de- make this decision probably, but are you guys making that a different call for your linemen uh, or are they needing to look out there and check and see how does that go with uh, – because obviously a lot of times your rules can, can be a little bit different if you're going to a tight end or if you're going to the just the tackle side.
1: Yeah, we don't even screw around running it to the open end. We're okay. going to attack the open end with counter or power or power read or what have you, some sort of zone scheme. Um, pin and pull is always going to be to the tight end now we'll do some things to hide it you know we'll motion the tight end across or bring him in as number three or number two from trips and you know we did a lot of that because what we felt that it did is it always gave us a seven technique so if you wanted to play a nine technique against us we were just going to get to an open set and let that tight end find his angle to create a seven technique no matter how wide that defensive end was And it allowed us to put the ball on the edge but to answer your question now we don't really uh I know Coach Beatonbo down there at Oklahoma does some stuff to the open side uh, with the pin and pull stuff, but we really haven't gotten into that.
2: Coach, you'd mentioned something a little bit about you call it map. Is there some other things you do besides pin pull with your your map schemes? You said you were going to go back to that.
1: Yeah, so our map schemes, you know, the the ISO zone play that's a map scheme for us um, because you're obviously your man on the front side, your gap on the back. Um, depending on what we're going to put in that week as a wrinkle, maybe the G play um g lead stuff like that that we can kind of use as half man half gap that don't really fit our zone rules and don't really fit our gap rules so they kind of have to have their own family
2: is that something when you guys are running you know your your iso zone is that something you allow your guys to call and and, and maybe make that call you know you'll lock it for an open side b gap or is that something that you guys actually call kind of knowing you know beforehand what you're going to get
1: so uh, you know Getting into the ISO zone stuff, we were a big wham football team. We play a, a three down front at Lackawanna, and we're in bear probably 50% of the time. And anybody who coaches offensive line knows that if you're going to ask your tackle to cut off a backside B-gap player on zone, you're not going to have a football play because it's the hardest block in football. Mm-hmm. Um, so we run the wham play a whole bunch. And the wham play kind of turns into insert zone for us if there's an open B-gap. All right, but if a defensive lineman tries to control the B-gap, whether it be a slant five, a three technique, a G looping, what have you, we're going to have our tight end clean it up. If there's no immediate threat in the B-gap, we tell our tight end or our H, he's got to own the B-gap, and he's going to end up fitting on that linebacker.
0: How does that How does that work with your tackle? Talk talk me through that. Like, if you've got a um, – because I'm trying to, to picture this because we've actually got two different calls for it, and I would love for it to just be one call. Obviously, I'm trying to take out as much as I possibly can. Um, so like if you've got a three and a five to the wham side, it, sure. it, your ta- tackle's what blocking out on the five, yep, and now your guard's going up. But if it's like a shade and a five, your guard's still blocking the shade and your tackle's still blocking out on the five. Now, guard's, the- got,
1: guards got the a gap. So, again, if the G stays a G, he takes it and they go. If the G loops to become a three, he stays on his track. He'll pick gotcha. the wheel up, looping in the a gap there. Um, what we teach our tackles to do, and this comes from Coach Tyler Bowen, the tight ends coach at Penn State. He was the old line coach at Maryland, helped me put in this scheme. Um, we teach our tackle, you know, whether it be an open B-gap or a closed B-gap on that backside, we're going to teach him to step at that B-gap defender. You know, whether it be the mint front or a three technique or the bear front, we're going to step at that defender so he thinks he's going to be cut off and he doesn't see the wham block coming, and then the tackle's going to own his angle inside out on whatever shows in the C gap again, whether it be a stand up five, a, a down five, a back, a back or what have you.
2: That's something you guys have then liked against the three, three stack. Cause that, that was something I was kind of drawing up and, and messing around with just the other day. So I'd love to hear, you know, kind of your thoughts on that knowing that like you're saying that to get that displacement block on the backside, you know, four, I, whatever you want to call it, setting him up to get whammed. And then, you know, almost kind of like arc in the tackle, correct?
1: Yeah. I, and I'll get you guys some cut-ups. I'll hit you up on Twitter with some of that stuff. But uh, I think we do a great job of it. You know, like I said, uh, I'm a firm believer in, you know, what you do well are things you do to beat your own team. You know, so we are a great Wham football team because we're a great slant angle three down front. And that five techniques becoming the B-gap player 60 to 70% of the time. So we have to be able to create that separation or that divide in the zone. Um, so we've kind of made a living out of it our base premise is that we're going to zone three down fronts and we're going to gap four down fronts. And then when you get to a five down front, it all depends on how you want to handle it. Do you have a dual threat quarterback where you can run the power and counter read stuff? Do you not? Like we have, you know, we haven't had a dual threat here the last couple of years. So we've been more of the wham zone and that kind of stuff against the bear. Um, but as a general rule, that's kind of what we say and how we're going to attack a defense.
0: So with that being said, and I, and I haven't heard that often, but I have heard it, you know, you uh, know, that, you know, you're really good at, at whatever uh, hurts your defense. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly how you said it. I'm not that smart. But uh, it was it was similar to that. With that being said, or with that thought process, is is do you take any time and, and spend watching um, the team you guys are going to go against? Do you watch their offense at all? Uh, does that every, ever come into it as an every offense week. coordinator? Really?
1: Every week. You know, so what I'll do is uh, we'll go through our defensive breakdown stuff and then Tuesday morning, I'll meet with our defensive coordinator. And, you know, we've been playing the same teams here, obviously, for the last couple of years. I've been here a long time. So we kind of have identities understood at this point. But I'll go to our DC and I'll say, hey, what are their top runs? And he'll say, OK, well, they're this, 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 and this. And then I can go back and say, OK, well, you're a three down front. So you're going to see primarily this and not this. OK, and that means that, you know, they're a three down front. So maybe the counter was really good to him. We're going to try and attack them with counter you know uh we do do that a lot we I, I think we scout and prepare a little bit harder than most junior college coaches i think we work really hard as a staff but yeah that's definitely something that goes into it and seeing what their offense does well kind of gives us an idea of how to attack their defense maybe more so from a passing game perspective at points than run game um but i think you can find value in it either way
0: so so you know getting into uh pass game uh, obviously for me, and I'm sure Walls will we'll talk probably more past game that, that all goes over my head, but uh, I, I start thinking, obviously, protection. Um, how day one or, or kind of your base thought process on, on protection, are you guys a man sort? Um, it, it's interesting, though, because uh, like you said, it's a two-year program, but it's a one-year. Um, for you guys so you want to make it work but you want to make it as simple as possible um, h- how have you kind of morphed that again without giving all your secrets away obviously
1: so from the outside looking in like if I were to hand you our playbook you'd find 16 protections in it when I, we install it to our guys we install three protections and it's just kind of variations off of each you know we run some five man scat stuff um, we primarily base ourselves out of half man half slide. Whether that be a six or a seven man protection, then we'll do some full slide stuff. All depends on the skill set that we have. I think the advantage of being the offensive coordinator is I think about the protection first. You know, uh you can drop all the pass schemes that you want, but if the guy doesn't have time to get it off back there, it's no good. You know, so we always think from a ground up perspective, we always think from a protection first perspective. We're a big play action and RPO based team, so that helps us there. Um, but we've been successful with the drop back pass, and I think You know, we've only allowed on average the last four years, 12 sacks, you know, so we've done a really good job of that.
2: When you're breaking down, say, like, you know, your your scat protections, are are there a bunch of different things you put on the QB for your five-man protections, or is that something where, you know, the offensive line's pointing to kind of where they they feel like pressure's going to be four-man side, you know, safety down, whatever their indicator might be? Uh, How do you kind of go about putting that together? Is that such a small part of your package that maybe you don't spend a lot of time on it?
1: No, we, we don't spend a lot of time on it. It's probably 10% of our game, to be honest with you. But again, depending on what skill sets we have that year. Um, but we're always going to build some sort of hot into the route concept, whether it be from an empty set or release in the back or what have you. We're going to make sure the quarterback understands the hot and that the center understands the hot, you know, because that tells the center that we can slide away from the hot because we're okay and we can protect the backside if we have to or the front side if the quarterback wants it, what have you. Um, so we don't spend a lot of time on it. You know, I think we're pretty basic, just like everybody else. we got four down plus Mike or three down plus two, you know, and the quarterback's got to belong to anybody else and understand where your routes are breaking off at, where your hots are to get the ball out of your hands. Coach, you've talked
0: about, you know, kind of making a Mike point a few times or a Mike declaration. Um, Talk me through – I'm somebody that, for whatever reason – uh, I understand offensive line. I understand blocking and and schemes. I, I I feel like fairly well. But when it comes to mic declarations or mic points, it's almost like uh, I've never been able to figure that out, or it just has never really made sense to me. Uh, if I'm coming into your you know to to your program and I'm I'm a freshman center that comes in, what's like what's the first foray or the first thing that you're talking about what a mic point is what the importance of it is or or what the what the thought process is behind it why do we need it um talk talk me through a little bit of that
1: you know we had used the count system um for years and it just kind of didn't allow us to move very fast I guess so we got more into the mic point system um you know when you come to play center for us at Lackawanna you have to you you have some rules that you have to abide by. The first thing you got to do is identify the front, whether it be bear, odd, or even, every play. And the next thing you got you to do is identify the mic. And how we identify the mic is the first linebacker play side, okay, play side, or where the slide is going to. And we don't say head up to play side. So, like in a three-three stack, that double zero wouldn't be the mic. It'd be one of those stack forty backers. And the reason we're able to do that is because we don't push our zones. So if we get a zone scheme called and they're going to bring edge pressure, we're going to throw off of that or RPO off of that, what have you. Um, So it kind of allows us to keep our mic points consistent. And then again, it goes back to knowing your rules based upon the three fronts that we teach.
0: So it it kind of helps everyone with their rules uh, in the fronts.
1: That's it. You know, so we identify the mic and then anybody to the play side past the mic is plus double plus so on and so forth. And then minus double minus triple minus on the backside. Um, so you know, for instance, our if we're going to run pin and pull against the four down front, we know the center's got to. I'm sorry, the front side tackle's got to pull the force. The center's got a mirror pull of the mic, and then the backside guard and tackle got to figure out how they want to get to minus, whether it be a fold block or a scoop block or what have you. You know, so that's the kind of ingrains that in their rules, um, and then again, they don't have to worry about mic points changing or anything like that because we're going to protect it with a throw. So, so
0: with you guys not pushing on inside zone. Uh, A lot of times, at least against like a three-four front, um, it it gives you almost like five base blocks. At least it did to me. I could never really figure out a good way to get any double teams working on that because the linebackers are tucked in and then go all the way out to a four or a four-eye. Now you are got to but also keep your eyes on these linebackers. The angles, to me, uh, were a little bit screwy. What do you guys – do you have any answers for that? Does it just end up turning into kind of base blocking all, all the way across? Uh, what do you guys try to do when, when you do go inside zone uh, to that odd look uh, or 3-4 look uh, when, with you not pushing it?
1: Are you, are, are you talking about a, a two-gap or a static 3-4 front, Coach? Because the majority of the fronts that we see in the three-down world are slant angle. They're going to move. I got You know, you. so that five's not going to stay a five. So if we're getting that three-down front, you know, like our defense was a base Opie front there for a couple of years. We're going to run the wham play because I don't know what that five technique is going to do. And it's going to be a really hard cutoff block for the tackle. And I'm going to lose half of my zone scheme. So it's not something I want to get into. Um, gotcha. I will say, you know, it, you kind of roll the roulette wheel when, when you run inside zone against those three down fronts. If you're going to get a slant angle team. So what we tell our guys, if they're going to slant to the zone, we're going to tear it front side and let the ball come back. Okay, If they're going to slant away from where the zone is going to, then we should be able to fit our Crowther technique double teams, take it vertical into the lap of the backer, and then let the back pushes read spot and kind of go from there.
2: You guys have a call then, too. I mean, so say you run it to an open side, 10 personnel, and the, and the dude walks up on the edge. I'm, I'm assuming then you guys will – You know, he's on the front side of your zone. Will you guys then push it when he walks up on the edge or is that still something you guys will throw out the front door off of it?
1: We're going to protect it with a throw, whether it be a two-receiver side or a single-receiver side. Our quarterback is a – you know, I think our system's simple enough where they understand we call it access, that if you have access to throw it to the single or throw it to the two-receiver side, take it. You know, it's just an extension of our run game. I will say you have to have an offensive coordinator and a head coach that understands that and is okay with that you know, because sometimes you might call inside zone and you're throwing a one-on-one fade ball in second and seven, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, making sure your head coach is on the same page and the rest of your offensive staff is on the same <laughs> page and all that, that's that's kind of a big deal. I will say, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to earn the trust of my head coach and change his schemes in 2015. You know, he was a 21 personnel style, ISO, power, counter tray. You know, we were running the down play from the wing T series. It was caveman football. We were running the Air Corel system, you know, Ace Cup gun, 6116, that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, when we went in and changed it, I think it made things a little bit simpler. But he kind of had a hard time at first understanding, like, hey, why are we throwing this bubble 77 times? Or why are we <laughs> taking that one on one fade here on, on, on second and eight? You know, so getting him on the same page took a little bit of work, but he trusts me. Um, so it's been, it's been good since then.
0: Is that something that you go in and and look at? Um, and I'd never heard of this. I think maybe till walls talked about it just a few weeks ago with me, but is that something that you go in and and chart your run plays with the r p o s tagged to them um differently than just regular run plays because I know that walls had gone through and and looked at his plays that he had an r p o tagged to it and and he averaged out those yards and did all his his you know rushing percentages with those RPOs tagged to it, and he gets a lot bigger number, not even throwing the RPO, just having it tagged, having that uh, threat got him a lot more yards than it did without it. Is that something that you guys look at at all, or is it more of a feel thing um, as, as you've gone throughout the years and, and started calling that?
1: To me, it's more situational. You know, I would venture to say that over 90% of our run schemes are tagged with some sort of RPO or access concept. Um, to us, we're going to take that stuff away when we get in a four-minute offense mode or when the head coach just gets frustrated that we're throwing five-step speed outs into the boundary, you know, so um, <laughs> we have the ability to do that. It's kind of uncommon for our guys. They kind of, like, look at you weird, like, hey, why are we, why are we changing who we are um, at this point in time, but I think, you know, the four-minute offense is something we really worked hard on last spring, ended up winning us probably three or four games this year, big-time football games against nationally-ranked opponents, so yeah, we took the RPO stuff out of it, and, um, you know, we kind of got back to, like, 1996 football, and we put everybody inside the hash marks and our snug and compressed sets, and you'd be amazed if people just don't know how to defend that stuff anymore. You know, you get five eligible receivers and sometimes eight gaps, um, and teams don't know how to fit it, so we take our RPO stuff off of that, get in a four-minute offense mode, and try and finish with a victory formation.
2: Coach, is that something now too, <clears throat> knowing you ha- you've had your system for four or five seasons and, you- and you've been kind of rolled into it, does is- that help you a lot then in, in recruiting, kind of knowing, I mean, it-, it, was- it sounds like to me, obviously you're going to have, you know, big offensive line having to, to move people and-, and run some of the things you want to run and then also probably going to have to have one, maybe two studs out on the perimeter, especially if you're going to play a dude into the boundary and he's going to have to run all those access routes and then have to win on man coverage. Is that something you kind of have to go and pinpoint every year? Like who's going to be our dude that can win in the boundary? Who's going to be our guys that can, you know, run the screens and block for the screens. And then obviously who could be the home run tailback we need to, to be able to make this thing go.
1: Yeah, I think the, the beauty of this system is that, you know, we, we don't have a set way, you know, we're not going to try and fit a square peg into a round hole. We're going to tailor our system and our scheme every year, depending on the personnel we have. I know that's cliche, you know, but again, we're a one-year program. We're a junior college. Mm-hmm. We have six full scholarships compared to our competitors, 65. You know, so we are a big-time developmental program. Sometimes our guys are with us two or three years, and they didn't have any opportunities with anybody else, and we kind of developed them into the players that they are. Um, so we're going to tailor that every year. You know, hopefully we're always going to have at least one big-time receiver. Um, if he's not on the outside, he's going to be our Z. And we're going to find a way to get them the ball on lock zone RPOs and jet sweeps and stuff like that. So we have the ability to change. Um, and I will say, you know, just from a junior college perspective, yeah, we want to win games and we want to put up stats, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is getting our student athletes to a four year school, That's you amazing. know, so it's kind of hard for me to justify handing the ball to a guy 25 to 30 times a game when I have three or four able bodies back there who need the tape and need the audition and get themselves to a four year school. So, I think since 2014, we've been a running back by committee type of football team, and we're okay with that. I think our coaches do a great job of having our players understand why we do it. And, uh, you know, when week 11 rolls around and they're all fresh and they're running for 80 yards a pop, you know, they kind of start to understand too. So um, to answer your question, we're going to tailor our system. We're going to tailor our scheme to what our kids do well. Like I told you guys earlier, we're an inside zone football team. We couldn't do it this year, you know, so we had to find a way to move the ball down the field on the ground. And that's where the pin and pull stuff kind of came about.
0: Do you have any, any big or good coaching points for your tailbacks and pin and pull? I I know um, and sometimes it gets a little obvious, you know, we, we try to widen our tailbacks away from our quarterback, but then it's a little bit too obvious because at least at the high school level, or or maybe just us as coaches, um, we have a lot of trouble with our tailback outrunning uh, a lot of our pin and pull scheme. Do you have uh, you know, kind of a, a coaching tip for them or, or coaching cues or points that you're talking to them about in pin and pull?
1: I think one of the best things that we do as an offense is that our tailback alignment is consistent no matter what play we run. We are a yard and a half from the quarterback, and we are toe-to-toe, no matter if we're running inside zone, pin and pull, counter, power, pass pro, doesn't matter. We are always in the same alignment. Now, we have to coach our ever-living tails off to do that and to, to provide no tendencies. Um, but it really helps um, our tailbacks understand because they don't have to worry about alignment based upon play. Then they really just have to learn who their read is and what they're looking for. So what we tell our tailbacks on the pin and pull play, um, if we're going to go cross-face, we also do some same-side mesh stuff with it, which is very difficult. You really have to coach that. But from a cross-face standpoint, we're going to tell our tailback to open and steal second base. Okay. And then once he receives the mesh from the quarterback, he's going to hug the hip of the second puller. And that's what's going to make him right. If the second puller kicks out, I'm up in the alley. If the second puller gets a hook or a reach, I'm out on the perimeter.
0: Is that something – how are you coaching up that second puller? Uh, Is that a drill that you guys work? Because I would love to have him really read the first puller. Um, and then I guess that's the other question Uh, your first puller is he working to that outside shoulder or or is he working to kick what's he looking for and then with that second puller obviously you know I've I've always liked to coach up hey read your first puller if he's getting it logged get outside of it he's kicking it get inside of it but also as that center goes around he also has to be ready for that mic or his declaration to scrape really hard and come underneath it all and, and kind of undercut him what's your coaching point for I guess both those guys really
1: so, I mean, the, the only drill we work coach to really work the pin and pull stuff and we just call it seal mirror and we work our seal block and then we work our mirror pulls, you know, get in depth so we don't get caught up mm-hmm. in the trash. And we're going to target the inside armpit no matter what. Because if a reach is going to happen, it's going to happen naturally by him trying to backdoor it. So we don't ever want to try and overrun it and try and reach it. The only time we get into a situation where we're telling that second puller that he might have to get around that first puller is if we're getting the tough front with a five and a nine all right so the tight ends down on the five and then that nine's there right now there's times where we've told the first puller hey cut him and let the second puller get out around the horn on the corner of the safety and then we got nothing but green grass out there um but if we feel that we can get that nine technique kicked out if he's a loose nine or a space nine like we we like to call it you know one of those overhangs that's not really an overhang we're going to try and kick that out and then get the center up in the alley
2: i like that coaching point of the inside armpit i think that's good
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty much stays consistent with us. Like I said, you know, we have to be as as simple as we can. And, you know, again, I I don't think I've said it enough, but give your kids ownership, make sure that they understand what you're trying to get accomplished and then let them make it their own because they're playing. We're not, they know who they can the mirror pull to. They know who they can seal block. They know what they have to do to execute a seal block. I don't know those things. I'm not on the field. So if your kids have a really good understanding of what you're trying to get accomplished and the schemes that you're running, let them be the coaches. You know, and, and we did a lot of that this year. We probably won two or three games on play calls that they called, you know, and, and you got to be able to trust your kids to do that.
0: Coach, so so kind of getting into just broad technique, um, it, it's really interesting to me with being at, at a junior college like you are. Um, you're going to have kids that, like you said, are going to go to Oklahoma and play tackle or Maryland and play tackle, and you're probably going to also have kids that – um
1: Played maybe at the high school, and and that's about it, (laughs) right? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and so and so, how how do you technique wise, and and then you're only going to have them for a year. How do you how do you teach both of those different kids at the exact same time?
1: You know, I think you have to understand where each kid is faster than at any other level. You really have to make a a conscious decision, saying, "Hey, these are going to be the eight to ten guys I'm going to work with." You know, maybe Johnny's not as strong as he should be. Maybe Jacob came in a little bit too big, what have you. You have to identify those eight to 10 guys immediately as fast as you can. Um, And and then we always talk about not having a a cookie cutter approach to coaching. You know, we're not a, like you, you talk about the power game and everybody says skip pull. Well, we don't skip pull. We call it a square pull. Some guys can skip, some guys shuffle, some guys drop, step and run. I don't really care what their feet do. I just want their hips and their shoulders square so that it can stay inside out on the mic point. You know, so we use the term ability-based a lot at Lackawanna College, whether it be a defensive lineman's alignment to where he's slanting to, an offensive tackle's pass set, a guard's pull. We're going to use ability-based skills to try and get the job done.
2: So well, I've always loved learning from guys that that coach junior college ball ever since, I mean, been in high school, just knowing that it's, it's the same thing that we're dealing with. You know, and, and it's probably even – even less for you guys, because I mean, at least we have guys, you know, three, four years in the program and, and we can develop them and, and you're not having that. So to me, you can learn so many cool things from guys because they had to keep it, you know, in a box, really, really simple. Here's, here's easy ways to do it. And then not only that, they, they understand the, the issues that high school coaches are going through too with that, with that ability base, dude, you're going to have the entire gamut of guys. And for me to sit there and think that I'm, I'm going to coach it one, one way, not going to work absolutely not going to work
1: absolutely you know I think one of the most frustrating things to me is we've had a lot of success we played for a national championship we've been a really really great football program here but I get people who tell me all the time you know we can't do what you guys are doing or we can't do it that way and it's just kind of befuddling to me that you know we don't make those excuses when we have a kid for 15 weeks you know but like Mm -hmm. you guys said you have a kid for three four years in the program And and let's be honest, you know, junior college is is meant for those who academically had some struggles in high school. You probably have more intelligent and more football savvy players, or at least a bigger group of them on your roster than we do at a junior college level. And then again, you go back to that time frame is, you know, I have to immerse them in our system and our terminology within six weeks in the summer. And then we got to go out to Utah and play the number six team in the country, you know, so uh, (laughs) it can be difficult at some times. You know, but uh, junior college coaches, uh, I I think we find a way to get it done. And, you know, from a Lackawanna college perspective on offense, we use the term fit foe, and that means figure it the F out, you know, no matter what happens or, you know, what type of player you got or scheme or something's going to go wrong probably 22 out of 24 hours a day in junior college, and and you have to fit foe or you're just not going to survive.
0: Coach, I'm kind of curious, you know, with – so many, it seems like junior colleges out there, and and you guys are all vying uh, just as the you know, division one schools are. But you're all vying kind of for the same kid, um, and and I'm sure you know no no disrespect to any junior college, but a kid that would rather be at, at Texas, but has to go to a junior college for a, a myriad of reason, or or at Oklahoma, wherever. What is what is maybe what's your selling point? What are you guys going out there uh, about your junior college that that sets it apart? From, from the other ones that these kids could go to?
1: We like to tell everybody that we recruit that we're a junior college by name, not by nature. You know, we've had a team GPA of a 2.8 or higher for the last five years. And I don't think Dabo and Uncle Nick down there in Tuscaloosa can say those things. So that's something <laughs> to be proud of. Um, and we also tell our guys that it's a very safe developmental place. You know, we're in Scranton and when a car backfires, it's a car backfiring. We background check every student that comes into the school. We don't accept felons. We don't accept students who have been kicked out of four-year schools for drugs, guns, Title IX, anything like that. So when I tell a prospective student athlete that he's going to be safe living in the dorm, it means something. It holds weight. You know, we uh, our cost is a little bit higher than most two-year schools. And like I said, our scholarships aren't really in line with our competitors, but we know if we can get a a kid who's got a really good support system and they want to see him be successful not only on the football field, but in the community and academically that we have a pretty good shot at. You know, there's a lot of loving parents and guardians and support systems out there that'll do whatever they can and sacrifice whatever they need to to put their son in a good situation to succeed in his life.
2: Coach, how rewarding is it to see those guys then go off to, you know, whatever school, you know, obviously, you know, the big time power fives, but also the kids that you, like you said, go D3 and and end up kind of, you know, getting their life back on track and knowing you guys had a little bit to do with that. It's expensive coach. My cable bills through the roof. Cause I got all these
1: packages to watch all these kids on, on TV <laughs> across the country, whether it be Arizona state or Baylor or Texas A&M or Penn state, what have you. So, um, but no, realistically it's, it's why you do it. You know, I I've had opportunities to, to move on to elsewhere. And I just think there's something different about coaching a junior college athlete. There's something different about helping a young man, achieve his dreams after the NCAA told him he was too dumb or didn't have the necessary test scores to be a collegiate athlete. Um, and you'd be amazed at how that can motivate people. I think the problem we run into is sometimes high school coaches don't really do their job, you know, and we're the ones breaking the news to the student athlete that, Hey, you're not going to qualify and you're going to need a junior college. And, and you have to be careful when you break that news to the youngster. We like to say that we're uh, we're Satan in January and mother Teresa in April. You know, because once they figure out that they're not going to get to Oklahoma or Baylor or West Virginia or what have you, hey, we're here with open arms and and we can do some things to help you.
2: I always thought it was cool that, you know, when the junior colleges would come through is like, you know, the less restrictions. So you you got to know those guys really, really well. I mean, like the guys at NEO, I mean, Ryan Held, you know, when he was at NEO, dude, he was, he was in Broken Arrow. I know Ryan very well. He's a stud, but I mean it was awesome just because those guys were in all the time. So, I mean, there, there was super, all kinds of access, but then you you got to build really, really awesome relationships with those kids. And then, you know, also I liked it too, because, you know, you might be telling the kid like, Hey dude, you're not going to qualify. You're not going to qualify. Here's the things that you're missing. And then the junior college coaches that would come in and have that relationship, they'd be able to, you know, to, to, to tell those kids and kind of back you up on it too. And I felt like, it was such a, a cool thing to be able to do because those guys were in all the time. It wasn't just a, a one or two times, you know, cause they're limited by the NCAA.
1: Right. Yeah. The recruiting rule restrictions aren't nearly as harsh as they are for four year schools. The problem that junior colleges run into are, are simply budgetary. You know, yeah. we don't have the $2 million recruiting budget that Georgia and Clemson and those guys have. So <laughs> again, being able to identify the prospects you want and maintaining the relationships with the coaches in the area. Um, like you said, that's vitally important you know, because there are certain schools that are going to have two or three junior college guys every year, dynamite football players, you know, so you have to maintain those relationships and, you know, whether you, you place the last kid from that school at a four-year school or not, you have to be upfront with the staff and the families and everybody else, you know, we're going to buy 120 apples every year and we're bound to get five or six bad apples, you know, and I think communication with the head coach and the rest of that staff at that institution you know, to let the kid, you know, let them know, hey, this just wasn't a good fit for us, um, that goes a long way. I think it, you know, you get into bad situations where there's no communication there between the, the junior college coach and the high school staff.
2: How important is it too, you know, knowing you're you're gonna get the bounce backs <laughs> from guys, you know, guys are leaving. How important is it then too to also kind of have the relationships uh, you know, up above you know from the the big time schools that are recruiting the kids and they're like hey this dude's not going to make it and you're going to be the first guy they call to say hey we're going to place him at Lackawanna
1: right you know that's uh you got to tread lightly there again we're not going <laughs> to take people who are kicked out for drugs or guns or title 9 you know if it's a scheme fit that doesn't happen or something like that yeah we're all open eared. um but I would say we probably have the least amount of bounce backs at any junior college in the country. We don't really make a living off of it. And when we do get a bounce back, it's usually not a power five or an FBS kid. It's that FCS kid who feels that he can get to the next level. And we found that those guys are a little bit hungrier. You know, there is a reason they transfer all the time. And, yep. and you have to accept that and you have to do your homework and do your research and have a good relationship with either the high school staff or the four-year staff to know really, you know, why that player is coming back to you. So again, that's, that's not the world we really live in, but if you get a, a the right one, he's a program changer. We took a kid named Andrew Ford from Virginia tech a couple of years ago. He was a state player of the year in Pennsylvania and, you know, Virginia tech just wanted to go back to the Michael Vick days and, and he wasn't a dual threat guy, you know, so he came in with us and kind of, Man, he was just a stabilizing force for a whole bunch of junior college guys, and his leadership was through the roof. And it, you know, he really put us on this path here, where we've been fifty-six and five over the last five years. You know, just what he taught us as a staff and a program.
0: You bring up a good point that that I don't always think about, but it's I think especially good for uh, probably high school offensive linemen, and I'm sure every position, but uh, especially offensive line, because there's going to be kids that are you know six-one or six-foot tall. Um, And, and by all film that you could watch are good enough to go to a division one school. Um, But because they're six foot or six one, they don't get that offer. Um, But they get a ton of defense, you know, division two offers. Uh, But you guys give them an opportunity by going junior college route um, to prove what they can do at the junior college level. And then maybe get that division one offer. What, what kind of kid are you looking for? Or maybe what's your, I don't want to say sales pitch because that sounds bad, but what is your recruiting pitch? What's your, um, you know, what do you talk with those kids about whenever you meet with a kid like that, that um, is probably a division one kid, but his size or his measurables or his whatever that is, doesn't match up. And he's trying to make that decision. Hey, do I go division two where I've got, you know, this division two scholarship or do I go junior college and kind of bet on myself to get that higher offer the next year or two?
1: you know we deal with that a lot um being in pennsylvania we are recruiting against the most competitive division two conference in football in the PSAC. Um, they sent six teams to the national playoffs last year i think slippery rock ended up being in the final four something like that so we you know a lot of the guys that we're recruiting um are also being recruited by those two-year schools and what we tell those young men is that hey listen if you come to Lackawanna and you give it a shot for a year, East Stroudsburg and, and Slippery Rock and IUP and all those Division II schools who are great programs, they're not going to disappear. You know, they're, the worst case scenario, you, you you come in, you give it a shot and you find out that maybe I am a Division II player. Well, then you take the offers that you had because they're not going to go away. Um, but maybe you can up your stock. Maybe you can gain 20 pounds. Maybe you can run a little bit faster. Maybe you can put some tape out there that can show people that can get you to the FCS or FBS level. I think being honest with those guys and not blowing smoke up their tails is is That's gotta be the most important thing, you know, because it's only going to cause you headaches later on when they're not being recruited by the power fives or the FBS or the FCS programs. You have to tell them. And those are tough conversations to have with kids. I'm sure you guys have them as well. Um, But again, I think honesty has to be at the forefront there so that they understand who they are as a player.
0: Well, coach, we're kind of rolling up now here on, on, uh, on an hour. Uh, but but the one thing that I always like to ask guys, and it's it's kind of cool hearing it from an offensive line and an OC guy, but when you're what and, and how you kinda scout other teams' offenses as well, but when you're watching another team's offensive line, what's some things they'd be doing that would make you think highly of their offensive line coach?
1: I I wanna see people get off violently on combination blocks. I think that is one of the most undercoached skills from an offensive line standpoint. I see a lot of guys leaving lateral or not bumping the buddy off fully. You know, if I see an offensive line who can get violently off a combo block and get onto a linebacker. And then at the same point, you know, be able to handle interior games and twists and stuff like that. Well, then they're well coached. That's my thought. Um, You know, what's mind blowing to me is like I said, we're a bear front football team and some guys will come in without a bear plan, you know, and they just, they, they don't, they don't block the three technique or they turn them loose on the back. So that stuff bothers me a little bit from an offensive line coach perspective. Like, how do you, how do you let your guys do that? You know, our guys know bear day one, but um, that's kind of what I look for. Pad level stuff like that. You know, again, a a lot of teams we play are going to have better athletes than we have. You know, we say all the time that if we had to compete in the Olympics, we wouldn't be nearly as good. Teams are going to run faster, jump higher, do all that kind of stuff. We're just going to play technically. We're going to play smarter. We're going to play harder. You know, I told our guys this year that we're not going to win the Olympics, but we're going to win every damn spelling bee because we're going to be the smartest five dudes on the field and we to be the most technical guys on the field. Um, and I think that shows up on our tape.
2: Coach, man, it's been a blast for an hour. It went really, really fast, but I uh, appreciate you coming on. And like I said, look forward to, uh, to seeing some of your cut-ups and learning some more stuff from you. Been super informational. I appreciate you, uh, you being willing to share with us, man.
1: I've been waiting to get on this thing for a long time, fellas. I really appreciate the opportunity. Like I said, I've been a, a listener, I think to every episode. I actually just listened to coach Robertson uh, this morning on, on the drive around here. So um, like I said, appreciate you guys having me. I know you got any O out there, but if you have any unbelievable players who need a junior college, pick up the phone. I'm here. I'd love to evaluate them. And uh, hopefully we can get you guys up to Scranton. We'll show you guys you know, the office museum and stuff like that. We'll get you a tray of red, and a tray of white, and a couple of pictures of beer and a, uh, We'll talk about some inside zone and wham.
2: As soon as they lift the travel ban, I think I'll be up there, man. (laughs) (laughs) You guys
1: are welcome. You guys get the floor fixed first, though. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's right. We'll do.
1: I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great night.
0: And that's gonna do it for this episode of RTP. We want to again thank all of our sponsors. You guys make sure and go check them out. Help grow our community by telling other coaches about Run the Power. And if you enjoy running the power, go get your shirt long sleeve, or hoodie at runthepower.com. Also, if you have any topics or any questions you would like for us to discuss in the next podcast, simply rate our podcast and then leave a comment in the writer review section of the podcast app. This will help our podcast rating as well as it'll allow us to answer the questions you all want answered. Make sure and go check out our blog at runthepower.com. Follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore coach and Coach Walls at Coach Brady Walls. Run the Power now also has its own Twitter and Instagram, and you can find that at Run the Power. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Talk to you soon.